Thank you so much, musicians. Good evening, everyone. Shall we pray together? Father, we are so grateful for the Bible. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in this way. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us understand it and guard us from error. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together our passage for tonight, Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In the late 80s and 90s, there was a rising movement in sociology called intersectionality. Now, what intersectionality says is that people cannot be grouped together by their identities separately their gender, their race, their ability, their religion, their wealth, etc., but rather all of their identities should be considered together. In other words, you can't just think of men versus women. You need to divide them again. For example, rich men and poor men, rich women, poor women. But this isn't, isn't enough. You need to keep dividing. Rich English-speaking men and rich Afrikaans-speaking men Poor English-speaking men and poor Afrikaans-speaking men. Rich English-speaking women, rich Afrikaans-speaking women, poor English-speaking women and poor Afrikaans-speaking women. And so on and so on. As soon as we introduce another dividing line, our groups split again. As you can see, looking at the world this way leads to smaller and smaller groupings as you find a different way to divide people. Well, in 1992, there was the... National Women's Studies Association Conference in Austin, Texas, as I'm sure many of you attended. The women were encouraged to break up into groups that defined their identities and grievances. So the groups that formed were the Asian American women, the African American women, Jewish women, disabled women, old women, overweight women, etc. However, these divisions weren't enough for this so-called United Conference. The African American women's group decided to split over those who had black partners and those who had white partners. The overweight women's group decided to split over those who were gay and those who were straight. And this went, so, this went on and on, every group finding yet another reason to split. It seems to me that some in the world are keen to split us up into smaller and smaller groups. I hope that from tonight's passage, we will see that the critical foundation of our common calling that makes us united as brothers and sisters in Christ, and the implication of that common calling uh, that it has on uh, how we treat one another. We're first going to look at our common calling, then look at our worthy walking, and lastly, at our ultimate unity. So firstly, our common calling. Let's read verse 1 again. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So let's start by reminding ourselves of Paul's context. He reminds us, uh, he reminds them and us that he is a prisoner for the Lord. 
verse 1. Why does Paul do this? Why does he feel like this is an important detail to point out? He doesn't give a direct answer to this question, so we can't be sure of, this, of the reason for Paul's reminder, but here are some of the consequences of this reminder. Paul is saying that the kind of walking that is worthy, the kind of living that fits with being a Christian, may cause you to come up against opposition. And that opposition may even lead to prison. But more than that, he's reminding us that he is qualified to call us to this difficult, radically changed life because he himself has been persecuted for it. I've never met Paul personally. I'm sure that he was a great guy. I'm sure he had many faults like all of us. But no one can say that he was not committed to living for the gospel and receiving from men the negative consequences of this. Paul is saying, before you are even tempted to question my position to urge you to do a difficult and sacrificial thing, let me remind you that I am currently in prison for the cause that we are both serving. Paul's imprisonment is in fact an outworking of the truth that all Christians share with Paul. Paul is, just as every Christian is, a slave to Christ, just as Andrew preached on two weeks ago. The internal reality is that every Christian is holy Christ's and does not live to serve themselves any longer, but lives to serve Christ. That's the internal reality of every Christian. For Paul, this led to an external reality of imprisonment and beatings and persecutions of other kinds as well. Now, for most of us, we can probably say that we will not share in this particular external reality, but what we do know is that the external reality that is ours is that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So be warned, Christian, that walking in a manner worthy of your calling will be difficult and will be opposed. Let's look back at verse 1. It starts with the word, therefore. So clearly Paul is basing whatever he is about to tell us on what he has just told us. So let's look at this for a moment. Several of Paul's letters follow a similar structure, as I'm sure many of you will have noticed. He spends the first part of his letter setting out truth, truth about God, truth about us, truth about the gospel. Once he has done this, he then pivots to give more practical instruction about how this truth should manifest itself in our lives. In the book of Ephesians, Paul gives 41 instructions or imperatives, things for us to do. Of these 41 instructions, only one is in the first three chapters. He gives the other 40 instructions in the last three chapters. So first he gives us the gospel truth, and then built on top of that, he then gives us instruction for godly living. Both of these things is critically, uh, both of these things are critically important. Believers need to be motivated by a firm foundation of the reality of the gospel before they can be expected to be motivated to change their lives. We cannot hope to see change in our lives. Um, we cannot expect to become godlier, Christi godlier Christians and have godlier characters uh, if that change is being motivated by something other than the solid truth 
of the Bible. But the reverse is also true. We cannot say that the truth of the gospel has had a transformational role in our lives if it in fact has not transformed us. Before we get to grips with the instructions given to us in the six verses before us tonight in chapter 4, we first need to look at the 66 verses in chapters 1 to 3. So, reading from chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, I'm kidding, we're of course not going to have time for that, but here are a few foundational statements uh, of truth that Paul establishes in these first three chapters. We were Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and verse 5, we were dead in our trespasses. Verse 2, we were sons of disobedience. Verse 3, we were children of wrath. Verse 13, we were far off, but God intervenes. Chapter 2, verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, he has raised us up with him so that, verse 7, we might see the immeasurable riches of his grace. Verse 13, we have been brought near. Chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 3, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 11, we have, uh, we have obtained an inheritance. And verse 13, it has been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So looking back at our passage in chapter 4, verse 1, what is this calling that Paul is talking about? It's this, independent of any help from us and without any value on our part, God makes a people who were dead in their sin alive. They have no prospect of responding to him on their own, so he sovereignly calls them and overcomes their resistance to his call. He calls them, he chooses them, he redeems them with the death of Jesus. He forgives them, he adopts them as children, and he secures them with the Holy Spirit and he gives them an inheritance. This is the calling. So that covers the therefore in our passage. One word down, 92 words to go. So now moving on to the worthy walking. There are many times in the Bible where we are given very specific instructions. Honor widows. Pray without ceasing. Do not speak evil against one another. And there are many times where the choice for a Christian is obvious and we still do the wrong thing. But here Paul is speaking in a very general way, not giving a specific action for a specific situation. Instead, he says in verse 2, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In other words, in everything that you do, in every circumstance, the guiding principle should be that your actions are becoming, uh, your actions are becoming of a Christian, that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that our actions are fitting of what a Christian should do. I think it's really worth pausing and focusing on the order of this phrasing because there is a right way and a wrong way to understand the relationship between our calling on one hand and the manner of our walking on the other. 
In other words, the relationship between our position before God, that's our calling, and the way in which we live our lives, our actions, our choices, that's the manner of our walking. The wrong way to understand this is to say, live in such a way that makes you deserving of the gospel, because we know that this is not possible. Paul does not urge us to live our lives in order to uh, live our lives in a certain way, in order to bring about this new relationship uh, that God has uh, established in chapters one to three. No, the calling has happened first. The gospel has already been achieved for you. So the right question is this. What manner of walking does the gospel deserve from us? What response is worthy suitable, fitting of the gospel. Paul says that your status, your position before God has already been set by the gospel. That's already happened. That has not been changed because of your actions. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. But now, now that God has done that for you, respond. Respond by striving to live up to God's standards. Respond by living in such a way that makes you an ambassador for Christ. Respond by living in such a way that matches the spiritual reality that has been achieved for you. Respond by walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So let's move on to verses 2 and 3 where Paul describes some of the critical parts of this worthy walking. So verse 2 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So here Paul has outlined several attitudes that we should strive to have. Obviously, these are not an exhaust, this is not an exhaustive list of what it means to be a Christian, but it's a pretty good start. The first one is humility. The last time I had the privilege of preaching, I discussed the ultimate example of humility that Jesus Christ presents for us in his laying aside his claims to um, his laying aside his claims to the privileges of being God, taking on human form, living as a man, and then dying on the cross in place of us. And the word for humility here in our passage is the same as that we find in Philippians two, when Paul tells that church that they should in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And this is the key to humility. Having a low estimation of yourself in your own mind, not regarding yourself highly or thinking that you are of much worth. Having a low regard of yourself, a low regard of your, of your accomplishments, your opinions, your perspectives, your preferences. And a key part of biblical Christian humility is the sense, it starts with having a deep sense and a deep, clear appreciation of who we are and of who God is. This is why Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter explaining our position before God and what he has done for us. So if you are struggling with humility, can I suggest that you meditate on the, on the truth that we started with tonight. You were dead in your sins. You were far off from God. 
and yet God made you alive. He redeemed you with his blood. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit and he has bought for you an inheritance. The next thing that Paul mentions is gentleness or meekness, which is very closely related to humility. If humility is the way we see ourselves, then gentleness or meekness is the outworking of that in the way we treat others. Gentleness is listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It deals with people in a kind and compassionate way without being harsh. But gentleness does not mean weakness. Gentleness does not mean that we should not be firm. For example, the Bible calls us to confront those who are caught in sin to restore them in a spirit of meekness. That's Galatians 6 verse 1. And furthermore, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, um, uh, we are told to correct false teaching with meekness. So there is no indication that we should not be firm against false actions and false teaching. In June of 2021, WhatsApp introduced a feature where you can play voice notes at one and a half speed or even double speed. I watch a lot of lectures on YouTube and as part, of my, as part of my job, and invariably I will always listen to them and watch them at one and a half speed. I hope if you're watching this video on YouTube now that you're watching me at least one and a half speed. The ability to watch and to listen to recordings at a faster speed um, is certainly one of the best innovations of the modern world. But what would be even better is the ability to make someone speak at one and a half speed while I'm talking to them in person. It's not that I'm not interested in what they have to say, but why do they have to say it so slowly? Why is it that the ability to make recordings play back even faster has somehow just ended up making people in reality even slower? A third mark of our life lived in a worthy manner is patience or long-suffering. A patient person is someone who endures negative circumstances without giving in to them. Again, our example uh, is set by God himself. We do not need to look far in order to see God's excessive patience with the rampant sin and rebellion of this world. And before we stray too far from Paul's encouragement to be humble, let us not pretend that we do not need God's patience. How many times have you repented from the same sin the same sinful patterns of behavior. And yet, has God ever had enough of you and rejected you? No, he is slow to anger and abounding in love. And much like God's patience with us, our patience with one another is motivated by love. First Peter 4 verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Imagine this for a moment. I would not have to ask you to bear with me if I was doing the exact thing that you wanted. The fact that this instruction is given to us assumes that someone, somewhere, is going to do something that is going to require another Christian to bear with them. As a Christian, your patience is not conditional. You are not patient and loving and forgiving of someone because they were previously patient and loving and forgiving with you. 
You are not patient with someone in order to build up some credit for the future time when you might need them to forgive you. No, your patience comes from a place of unconditional love, like God's forbearance with sin is motivated by his unconditional love for us. And also, to be clear, when you are patient with someone when they sin against you, you are not condoning or justifying their sin. Just like God's forbearance with our sin is not condoning or justifying it. It is merely an expression of love towards your fellow broken sinner who is also a child of God. Finally, Paul says that we should be, in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Other versions present this instruction as make every effort to keep the unity or being diligent to preserve the unity. What we, we can see from this is that this is not an effortless thing to do. This is not natural. It won't just happen on its own. There will be forces and temptations and sin that will seek to break apart the unity of the Spirit. So Paul gives this instruction in this way uh, that we should be eager and diligent in maintaining the unity of the Spirit. This is not something that we can simply be indifferent to. Remember how we started tonight. Remember the cost of our calling. Jesus died for it. So we cannot just be indifferent about the unity that it secures. We must eagerly strive for it. As Christians, the one thing we all have in common is the Spirit. There is no Christian without the Holy Spirit. It is our common denominator. Our new birth was bought by the Spirit. The Spirit is our guarantee. It seals our inheritance for us. It is common to us all. Let's move on to verse six, uh, four to six and look at our last point, ultimate unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Spot the repeated word, right? I wonder what Paul is trying to get across by repeatedly using the same word over and over again. That word, of course, is one. He uses this word seven times in these verses to describe a number of different things. He starts with one body, one spirit, and one hope in verse 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism in verse 5. And then one God and Father of all in verse 6. So let's take these in turn. One body, one spirit, and one, and one hope. Body here refers to the body of believers, which is another way of referring to all Christians collectively together. Uh, for example, speaking of Jesus in Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now Paul is writing at a time when uh, the unity of the believers, the oneness of the body, could not be taken for granted. Their society was strongly divided on socioeconomic, lives, uh, socioeconomic lines, slaves versus free peoples, on gender lines, male and women, male and female, and on ethnic divides, particularly in the church, with Jewish and Gentile believers. So making a statement about how we are in fact one body as a group of Christians might have sounded quite radical. And he underpins this reality 
of one body by reminding them that they have the same spirit that dwells within them, that they have the same hope of the same calling. We also have one hope of our calling. We may have different perspectives, different circumstances, different experiences, different races, different languages, different trials, different hardships, different victories, but we all have, if we are Christians, the same identity in Christ, the same mission on earth, and the same eternal destiny. Next, Paul moves on to talk about one Lord, one faith, one baptism in verse 5. One Lord clearly referring to Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12, there is, no sal there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Then there is one baptism. Because there is only one Lord, and submission to that one Lord is only preached by one faith, there is also one way that that one faith gives us to testify to our, to, um, to testify to our submission that that one Lord is our Lord, and that is through baptism. We are not baptized into different denominations. We are baptized into the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And lastly, Paul moves on to complete by saying that there is one God and Father. In contrast to the polytheistic religions that that world at that time was full of. This would not have been a controversial thing to say to Jewish Christians, but to Christians saved out of Roman and Greek backgrounds with their dozens and dozens of gods, this may, they may have needed a reminder of this fact. So what's the connection here? What's the connection between Paul's instruction to walk in a manner worthy and his fleshing out of what this means, humility, gentleness, patience, maintaining unity, what's the connection between all those things and this reminder that he gives us of the fact that there is one body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, and Father? What's the connection between those two things? I think the connection Paul is making here is that at the heart of our Christian faith, there is a oneness, there is a unity. There are not multiple spirits, there is one spirit. There are not multiple faiths, there is one faith. There are not multiple lords, there is one Lord. There are not multiple bodies, there is one body. So the reality, the hidden reality, is that there is one faith, one body. And Paul says that this inward reality must become a visible outward reality in the way in which we deal with one another. That is, the inward reality that we are all one body with one savior and one faith is made visible and obvious to the world through our humility and our gentleness and our patience and our forbearance. The fact of our unity the inward reality of our unity is not based on us. As a church, as a universal body of believers, we are in fact, in reality, unified, regardless of how well we are doing at acting like we are unified. This is because if we are saved, then it is by the same gospel. The fact, the inward reality of our unity is not dependent on us because it is based on our salvation, which is also not dependent on us. 
It is established through and based on our common savior. In fact, our common calling. God created this unity when he saved us. And that, I think, is why Paul says that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, not create the unity of the Spirit, not establish it. It is already there. There is nothing we can do to create it. This is yet another reason why we are eager to maintain the unity in the Spirit, because it reflects the inward reality of the oneness of the body. You are united. Now act like you are united. This is our calling that Paul says we should reflect in the way we live our lives. And then here is how you do it, by being humble and gentle and patient and loving. We have a common calling, church. We need to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. If you aren't convinced that we will fail repeatedly at this, then you probably have not spent enough time around Christians. We lack humility. We seek to elevate ourselves above each other. We are upset when we feel we aren't sufficiently recognized for our ministry or our sacrifice. We resent one another um, when others are honored above us. We assume that any authority over us is at worst malicious in their decisions and at best incompetent. We lack gentleness. We do not treat each other with kindness and compassion. We lack patience. When a brother in Christ sins against us, our first instinct is to make sure he and everyone else knows about it. We do not value the reality of our unity as a Christian body, and we don't strive to maintain it. We need God's help in this church. We need him to establish us as a unified community, united by our common calling. But we also need his help to walk in a worthy manner, to have humility and gentleness and loving patience. Our unity is established by the Spirit, but we also need the Spirit to, to help us to maintain our unity by helping us walk in these ways. Let this be a reminder of how much we need God's help in this failing and in every other failing. There is no self-reliance in our calling and there is no self-reliance in our worthy walking. As Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And perhaps even more explicitly, Paul expresses how much we need God's help in this by praying that God would make us worthy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, that God may make you worthy of his calling. If your sin tonight has made you realize that you are not right with God, that you are not trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus to secure God's forgiveness, then I would ask that you think about these things, that you meditate on them, that you repent of your sins, and that you start to trust in Jesus. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that is offered to us through Jesus. We ask that you would continue to help us in making us worthy of this calling. 
Help us to hate our sin and our division more and more each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.